This New America event took place on Tuesday, August 25th, 2015, following the screening of Tomorrow We Disappear, a social cinema screening in collaboration with the Indo-American Arts Council, and features Beth Dembitzer, Arun Shivdasani, Jimmy Goldblum, Adam Weber, Fazila Aslam, and Asim Chabra. Uh, folks, there's a team. That's Jimmy, that's Adam, and Fajilat, right? Fazilat, okay. Um, my name is Asim Chabra. Um, Arun Shivdasani introduced me before I... Uh, I'm the uh, festival director of the New York Indian Film Festival. With, and we really wanted to show this film, but they took it to some little tiny festival called Tribeca or something. So, but... Um, uh, this film, I, I saw it last year and, and talked to these two gentlemen and was very, very moved by it. Um, I think the, the first question I'm going to ask them is, I know the answer to that is because I, there's a small little book that you read. <laughs> and tell them about the book and the connection of the book with this film. Sure, yeah. I just want to say thank you guys so much for watching the film and sticking around and thank you to Asim and, every, and Arun and everybody. Um, yeah, so I don't know if anybody's heard of Salman Rushdie. He's an author, it's no big deal. Um, he wrote a book, uh, Midnight's Children, uh, and at the end of that book, uh, Celine, the main character, hides out in a magician's ghetto. Um, I read that book in college and Jimmy and I were college roommates together, actually English majors, and um, it like, I mean, not to overstate it, like changed my life in a lot of ways and my perspective on the world and my perspective on art and what is truth and real truth versus emotional truth and set me on this journey. Um, years later, uh, we're separated by coasts. I'm on the West Coast, he's on the East Coast and we've been following each other's work and Jimmy read Midnight's Children um, and he's one of these people that like Googles every word he reads um, and that's a good book for it. And so he Googled India magician's ghetto and found like a little blurb in the times of India um, and sent it to me. And we like tried our best to do research. And at the end of the day, we were like, uh, we have to just fly to India. Um, we found a magician um, on Facebook who, uh, magician Ishamuddin on Facebook and he, uh, was like, yes, I live here. And we're like, no, that's good enough. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he's, that's fine. Uh, so we, <laughs> we flew over in my first time in India. Um, and he met us at this new modern subway station and took us, weaved us around in these alleyways uh, past people freebasing heroin and just like um, through a slum and uh, then we started seeing like puppets on the walls and stilts hanging and, uh, and we started, uh, I, I still remember like getting the feeling like, I think this is true, I think this place exists. And pretty much from that point on, we were, we were there. You went with the intent of making the film or just let's travel to India and go look for this place where Salman Rushdie wrote about? I mean, we definitely went with the intention of making the film. Right. Yeah, I mean, we had gleaned enough information on the internet through, you know, random magicians on Facebook that we, we felt this place existed. And, you know, we showed up with the intention of, I mean, we showed up with the intention of making something that was a bit more 
of like a collaborative, sort of more in the spirit of Midnight's Children, we brought in a pretty, you know, narrative film team, people who had done unscripted narrative who were, you know, less in the documentary field. And we were gonna, you know, do something a little bit headier and more conceptual as, you know, artists collaborating with artists, conceptual magical realism documentary. And then we showed up and that scene uh, where they're handing around the newspaper, you know, that the land had been sold, that was our, fifth day in the colony, about, thereabouts. So, you know, we, we sort of had a group meeting and just kind of scrambled a bit and uh, refocused. And, you know, I think from that point, which is always a good instinct in documentary, is that like we abandon our plan. You go in with a plan and then you just give it up very quickly because life is far more bizarre and interesting than anything you could conceive of in your apartment in Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's an interesting uh, point that right at the beginning, Purun Singh says about, uh, Purun Singh was the, the, the puppeteer um, who last year came to Tribeca also. I mean, like, yes. um, and he's traveled all around the world. Um, he makes a statement that I want you guys to shoot a video of my home. I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's very moving because um, they want documentation also that they exist as such. Um, so was it easy for you guys to just land there and say, hey, we're gonna make a film? Were you there with them, by the way? I was. I, I got there on the sh third shoot, and when they first invited me to come to the shoot, I was like, oh my God, it's like some guys from Brooklyn who want me to go into like a slum in India. And, um, you know, I went in very sort of precautious, and they, the relationships that they had created um, with these local Indian traditional artists were stronger relationships than I've seen after working in South Asia for many years on the ground with locals. You know, I've worked with locals a lot and the relationships that they had were probably stronger than a lot of the ones that I've managed to build with teams. So I was incredibly blown away. And uh, I, I was just amazed at the, the friendships that they had built and the trust that they had with the people in the colony. You know, but uh, Jimmy, tell us about the friendship because and people open up their doors and their homes. I mean, the homes are very small spaces, but they let you into their lives, really. Um, and how much of that, you know, what, what effort did you have to put in? Or what does it take to do that? What's interesting is, like, we're not the first people to walk in there looking like we look with, like, equipment that we were holding. Um, but most of the other people who had gone in there were, were just taking a photo and getting a statement and then leaving. And I think the only difference with us is we just kept coming back every day. Um, and that was something that they hadn't really experienced before in the same way, that we just, we flew there. I mean, we're, you know, we came there with the intention of collaborating to make a film, to explore something. And that was our priority, was to get to know them and see what was there. And I think it took a couple weeks for them to understand that like, oh, they're here as people. They're not here as uh, journalists. They're not here as, uh, yeah, they're, they're not here as tourists. They're, they're here, they're, they're not like taking a tour of India and finding themselves. They're, they can't, you know, they came, uh, they came, to, they came here to meet us and, and to, there's, there's a commonality that I think we, we, we told them on the first day that they acknowledged, which is like, we, we're from a different place, but we identify with what is happening here, and which is why so much of the film is about this identity crisis. Is you know, are you artists? Are you poor people? What value do you have creating things? What value does does that hold in a world that's always changing? Um, and that's very relevant 
to, to all of us. So um, I, I, I think it's a question that everyone's probably very curious about. Uh, you guys finished the film last year before Tribeca. Um, the last sh shot of the television thing, was that added later or it was then also? That was two weeks before Tribeca. Oh, that was two weeks before Tribeca. So where does the situation stand right now? Does the colony still exist? Yeah, I, in, in, I think in many ways our, the title of our film has become prophetic in some ways. It just, they're, they're constantly living on this razor's edge of, of disappearance, but they've been able to hold on. And what, what, was happening, what was happening there in the end credits was, you know, the elections in India. You know, Modi was coming in, Congress Party was coming out, and, you know, all these people who were sort of responsible for selling this land in the first place were like, oh, you know what? Like, I might lose my paycheck if we don't get these people out of here. So there was this last very intense push to get people out of the colony, and they were able to get media attention. I mean, it didn't hurt the, that the movie was able to get a lot of media attention in India, and journalists showed up, and they were able to stay. And this new party has come into power now in Delhi, the AAP, which is you know, by no means perfect, but much more sympathetic, I would say, to, to the redevelopment cause, you know, to the Catholic cause, and you know, making sure that, it, at the very least, that their opinion is being taken into account in whatever scheme is being made for them. So. 300 families have left the colony, but none of those, of about 3,200 roughly, and none of those 300 families are artists' families. They're all not artists. So the left and the, and the temporary, those, uh, those housing that looks like something they built during Katrina, I think, after right, Katrina. Yeah. 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 yeah, so much of uh, what was confusing, and hopefully that, I mean, hopefully um, the film uh, conveyed just the level of confusion from their perspective, which was like a, a really important thing that we fought very hard to keep in. Uh, you know, we shot all these interviews with like sort of expert interviews, which is people who don't live there telling you about statistics and about gentrification. And, um, and uh, it's not like the, they're very smart people and it's not like the world doesn't need films like that. It's just that I feel like for me, what, what struck me while I was there is just how that information gets filtered down to them. Like what actually, what it's like to stare up at the next multi-million dollar first ever skyscraper in India and what that feels like. And so much of it is just like, wait, what's happening? Oh, it's never gonna happen. And then like, maybe it will happen and it's your fault. No, it's your fault, you know? And so much of that is like, I really connected with because that's exactly what I would have done. How, um did you guys discover yourself while making the film? I will take this. No, no, no. I want each one of you to say that. I mean, there's, there's a process of filmmaking and all the, 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 you know, the grind of editing and, and yeah. all of that and raising money and all of that. I, you know, I don't want to, I mean, you know, but it's, what was it that connected you with these people? <laughs> I mean, look, we were very, very wary of making a film that was, you know, us romanticizing these people and creating something that would feel very Orientalist to us. We were very, very aware of that from the beginning and, you know, really trying to, to, to present the romance and then slowly try to strip it away to just get at people as people because I think that's a far more interesting film. 
Uh, I think for us, I mean, you know, the documentary process is humiliating across the board. I mean, you just have all these great ideas and then all of them fall apart all the time, you know, just constantly. And you're just like, you know, I always recommend to people at Q&As is that like if you have control issues and this is a room full of New Yorkers, so you all have control issues, just go make a documentary in <laughs> India. And you'll just exercise that out of your system for a time because you can't control anything. And it was it was humiliating and then it was nice. Because I was like, oh, all right, yeah, we're all gonna die and this is great, we're gonna just go with it. <laughs> Nailed it. Um, I, so I came onto the film for the last shoot and it was a wonderful shoot that I had not expected to walk into at all, but I had been making documentaries in Pakistan, where I'm from, for about uh, five or six years. And I'd been doing a lot of sort of social justice topic-wise stuff. Um, so a lot of stuff with the Taliban and a lot of slum sort of. And I was very hesitant, like I said before, to, uh, to get involved with this film. But from the day I walked into the colony, um, I saw what their team had built and uh, it made me realize that you can make documentary films and have integrity and uh, honesty and you don't need to superimpose your ideas on people. You can really listen to people and let them tell that story themselves and I think that's the thing that I appreciated most about working on this film um, was that we listened to people rather than focusing so much on telling their story. We really allowed them to tell it and that's the you know that's another reason these guys won't admit it but why they're really smart is that they worked with, with performers they worked with artists who are you know it's in their nature to to be poetic and be dramatic and 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 emphasize the parts that they think they need to emphasize to get their point across and I think this is a story they were waiting to tell their whole lives and I think they just finally found the people who are ready to listen to them Adam? Uh, I'll tell a story to undercut uh, her compliment of us, um, <laughs> which was uh, first shoot, I guess, about a week or two into it. And, and in retrospect, I mean, at that moment, it occurred to me that, like, um, before what they were giving us are, are, like, their talking points a little bit, which is, like, we're artists, uh, you, you know, we're traditional artists, we make traditional crafts and our home is getting taken away and that's all true and they felt it and it was emotional, but it wasn't human to human. It was, it was subject to, uh, you know, journalist and the, there was a dynamic there. And of course, I didn't realize that you're not conscious of that when you go in, that's just the, the kind of conversation you're used to having at that point, um, especially in a new place. Um, I was a foreigner. And um, then some drinks started coming out, some excellent rum, and uh, I'm not a good drinker, and uh, we were on Peron's rooftop, and I remember um, our translator at the time uh, was making a joke and said, oh, Adam's the, uh, the number one singer from America. <laughs> and I didn't understand what he said. And so he looked at me and was like, Oh, in an approving way. I was like, yeah, I am. Yeah, I am from New York. That's right. No, I, I didn't understand. And so uh, the translator was like, uh, they want you to sing a song. Uh, I was like, oh. Uh. 
Did I believe I sang uh, A Whole New World from Aladdin? <laughs> Terribly. I am the worst singer. And at that point, I mean, they laughed a little too hard. But at that point, I think there was like, oh, these guys are just... They're just human beings. They're not like, <laughs> they're, they, they, don't, modest. It was they don't have a plan. <laughs> um, and I think there was like a little bit of a turning point there. I mean, we all got pretty drunk and, you know, break dancing contests. And, uh, you know, there was like a moment there where like that was like a, a, a veil, for lack of a better analogy, that like dropped a little bit. And there was no dynamic, uh, or at least it was diminished at that point. And like, then we started just like celebrating their kids' birthday parties. And like, that's when it was, you know, and kind of got lost in the story along the way. Yeah, I mean, there, there is always a line where, you know, we are still filmmakers and, you know, part of that is you have to sort of be able to show people's worst side as well. And, and how do you do that when you're friends with people? You know, when you've built these, with these intimate relationships where you're friends with their children or grandchildren and you respect where they come from, but they still do things that are, that are you know, silly or misguided or myopic or any of those things. And, and how, do you, how do you create that space where you can still like people and be friends and get along, but, but show their, but also reveal them as humans, which means having a worse self, you know, having a self that's desperate. And it was always a balance for us because we really appreciated them so much. We appreciated the fact that they lived in many ways in, this, in what is a slum. By any standard, internationally, it is a slum. And they just enjoyed their lives, but they would do things. And for us, it was, you know, you can't take it for granted that people will trust you. You know, you can't take it for granted that you can go into a place and you have awards and you have a good reel and that people will say, you know what, I get it. This guy's good. He's talented. He's going to tell my story right. Like, you really have to build that space with people where, you know what, like, maybe sometimes I will know you better than you know yourself. You know, like, I'll show you a side of yourself that you might not be proud of, but I'm doing it out of respect. And I'm not doing it out of a way that's, you know, critical or judgmental. I'm doing it because I see the type of person that you are. And it's, it's always going to be a challenge for documentary filmmakers, you know? Like, we had fun with it. It was hard a lot of times, but we, we enjoyed the process the whole way. The, the man who inspired you, Salman Rushdie, actually saw the film. Yeah. So you want to talk about that? It, it was one of the most surreal moments of my life for so many reasons. Uh, it was, it was um, my first feature film uh, at Tribeca Film Festival um, where they flew out Peron Bot from the film. Um, and sitting in the front row is like my first grade teacher and my mom and my dad smiling very much and Salman Rushdie. And, <laughs> and it was just like, I mean, I, I have no memory of it. That's what's interesting. I've blocked it. It was too intense. He translated every single word because Purin um, spoke a fair amount at the premiere. He translated every single word for the person next to him and like explained everything to her. He was so immersed and sort of just engaged with the film. So he was, yeah. Also, Fazilat had puppets made of Adam and me. Oh, yes, I as, those, yes. As a gift. So before we got to the emotional, you know, Salman sort of dictating our Q&A, there was the beforehand on the red carpet where... Puran and him were hanging out with puppets of Adam and me, like kissing each other. 
And, and that was, I don't know, still the surrealist thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> that's, that's really cool. Uh, should we open up to the audience? Questions? Um, okay, the gentleman at the back and then I'll come to you. Was Burns' urban planning drawing ever presented to the developer? He, you know, it's kind of a sad story. Um, he had tried to show it to a few people, but what had happened in between, uh, so that scene happened, um, I guess about midway through, um, and on our second shoot. And <clears throat> when we went back on our third shoot, and we're like, asked him that same question, like, whatever happened to that map that was like very impactful for us? For him, it was like no big deal. It was like, oh, here's something I did. Wouldn't this be cool? Kind of thing. And we were just like, so like, yes, this would be cool. This is my dream. This is your dream and also my dream. Um, and like when we asked to see the map on the third shoot and we were thinking like, oh, maybe we could, you know, you could bring the map here, like trying to like encourage him to like share this and... Um, and he was like, oh, that, yeah, I had it destroyed. Uh, it's, uh, it doesn't exist. It's, uh, it, you know. And like, it was like this moment of just like one of many moments where you see like um, an identity crisis, which is why like he's the one who in, kind of embodies that in a lot. Of, I, I guess they all do, but he's, am I an artist or a poor person? That's like a very relevant question for him. And the, the map, and it's a great question because the map like symbolized that for me. Um, you know, one of those moments you don't get on camera, but like that was really uh, emotional. Did you ever show them the footage as you were doing it? Did they, or did they, did the people in the village only, or the, only see it when it was finished? Or, or have they seen it now and how did they react? Yes, uh, we would show them. I mean, we would take a lot of photos that we would actually give to them so that they could go off and market themselves to people who would do events planning in Delhi. So there was a whole process of that. And sometimes we would cut little reels so they could look really cool and try to sell themselves, market themselves. Um, but we were, we were definitely protective of the film as a whole until the very end because, you know, you, you come up with a lot of ideas in the edit. We shot 450 hours of footage, you know? That's a lot of movies. And so there's a lot of things, you know, there's a lot of different ways that we could have represented them. We could have left a lot of things out and we could have put a lot of things in that would have, I think, been a less honest portrait from our perspective because the portrait we put forth is the one that we think is most accurate of how we felt at the time. But uh, we waited until the end and um, Peron, you know, Peron saw it uh, right before Tribeca and uh, he had some thoughts and, you know, he really, really responded to it. He was very emotional, but he was like, you know, I just don't know if it, if it will be emotional enough. And then, and then he came to the premiere and, you know, it was, a, it was, you know, 600 people and no one left the Q&A and there was a lot of crying and... Standing ovation for Peron. St standing ovation and I think, you know... For us, for and, you know, from his perspective. <laughs> no, it was true. And it was like, and like the scenes that he had trouble with were the scenes with Maya where she was giving a sort of tour of the colony's sort of darker side, which is, you know, here's people who drink and gamble and smoke and like can't put a life together and are living in, you know, in... in very base conditions, and he wanted it taken out at the time because he didn't get it, but I don't know. No, no, no. Breathing. I, I think that's a, an important point is uh, that's another lesson you learn. I, we did show footage as we went. There were like little scenes. We showed uh, the 
they're like government. They're their government, which they were all yelling at each other, um, called the Bully Beast Ray. And uh, we showed them little snippets as we went and scenes. But what's interesting is like this sort of like barrier that needs to exist because in order to get at some the spectrum of opinion there. Obviously, Maya feels very differently than Puran does. She feels very differently than Rahman does. And there's scenes in that that would make all of them uncomfortable being public because there was a, a level to where our cameras did disappear. And that's just because we were around a lot. We were there a lot and um, shot a lot of footage. And Maya talking about the shortcomings of the colony wouldn't have played very well with Peron, who was trying to represent the colony in a different way. And it was the, the film's goal to show this spectrum that was so important to us, because Maya's voice is just as valid. Yeah, and I think, like, it's also, I don't think it's interesting as a film or as an idea that this is, like, a magical place of magicians, acrobats, and puppeteers, and everything's perfect, and they're losing their homes. What I think is actually far more interesting and something really to think about is that this is a place that in many ways is broken. And in many ways, there's things that are very wrong with it. But, and, and you know, their standard of living, and a lot of them wish they had a higher standard of living, but they want to live there. And why do they want to live there? To be able to show, you know, the side of it that is maybe a little bit less, you know, savory, and still say that, like, we find this valuable, our history is rooted here, we want to stay here. I think that argument is a much more potent argument. I was talking to Puran about this once in the beginning, and I think my line of questioning was getting a little bit obvious, and he turned to me and he said, Fazila, I don't want to live in your home because that is not who I am. And if I lived in your home, I wouldn't be me anymore. And it's just so true to go in and project your own standards of what you think home is or what you think comfort is is so misguided and he sort of, you know, he had to sort of teach me a lesson. I was like, right, I get it. Yeah, I get he's it. like, I can't spit and throw my cigarettes in your home. So <laughs> This has come up just because of what you've said. Is there anything that was left on the editing floor that you think we should have seen and was not in the film? It's a great question. Um, that you should see, I don't think there's anything that would have helped your understanding necessarily of, of, the, of the greater themes. I think there are moments that are really fun. I think there's art that's really exciting. I think there's characters who are really rich, uh, who had their own individual journeys. I mean, we had, a, we had a juggler who had left the colony and was actually working as a laborer. And when his father passed away, he, was, you know, he said to himself, I have to be back in Kathputli because that is where I was born. That is where my art was passed on to me. And, you know, it's my birthright and I have to go back and, you know, try to make this work. And I think that those are incredible stories. Unfortunately, when you're making a film where you need to sort of have a, you know, the plot and the subplot and the narrative needs to have what you consider a flow to it, it you know, it, it, it would just get meandering. But I don't think that there's anything that we left out that, makes the film disingenuous, you know? I think we're, we were trying to tell a portrait that felt very honest to us. Oh, yeah, I mean... We that were... wasn't something we caught on camera. I mean, that's the real question, is not what we have that we didn't put in the movie, but what we don't have that we witnessed. Because yeah. that, that is the hardest part of being a documentarian, is, like, wondering why you're not recording everything all the time. 
and oh. going to sleep with that. Like, yeah, and it really like, oh, man, I don't want to get off to, to off point too much, but like, you know, the first couple weeks, it was like this, you know, you you're not a human being because you're stressed out about capturing a person. It's such a, that's such going, that's an endless uh, journey. You're never going to get reach the end of that. You're never going to be able to capture anybody with anything. What you can do is learn how to listen to what they're saying to you in the moment. That's what it is. And sometimes listening doesn't require cameras. And so we learned to put our cameras down a lot. And so we missed a lot too, because we were being, uh, you know, present. I mean, there, there was this moment because that news report came out two weeks before Tribeca. So we sent our, we sent one of our cinematographers back and we're like, we have to capture footage in case anything happens because we'll just pull the movie, you know? Um, and so they went to the transit camp, our uh, translator and our cinematographer went to the transit camp and four black tinted BMW SUVs showed up and they began yelling at them because they're like, I know who you are, you're Jimmy and Adam. And it was like, we're not Jimmy and Adam. Uh, and then basically Naveen Rehaja came out and you saw him very briefly in the film wearing the sunglasses. I mean, he's, he's the Indian Donald Trump. He's Indian Donald Trump. And uh, he gets, he gets out, of the, out of his SUV and he begins to, he begins to sort of <laughs> talk to them. And then he stops mid-sentence because he sees a mongoose. And he's like, I have to kill that mongoose. And he just takes off running to go kill a mongoose at the transit camp. And then our, our, you know, our cinematographer gets on Skype with us that night and recounts the story. And we're like, this is amazing. How, what an incredible allegory. I mean, he's, you know, mongoose is killed rattlesnakes. I mean, yeah, it was, it was, I was like, that's great. Send the footage. They're like, oh, well, you know, we didn't shoot it. <laughs> you know, those guys are really intimidating and they were telling us not to shoot. I was like, well, just please don't come back. <laughs> It was a moment we wish we caught. It, it would have been very nice to put that in. Um, I'm bad with the, the names, but um, the puppeteer, basically kind of the way you told the story where, um, at least as I watched it, 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 it the puppet, what's this puppeteer? Pura. 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 Um, kind of this protagonist thing about him, and it seemed like very focused on him and not as much kind of his family. Then the magician, you know, he had his boys. And like, is that an accurate portrayal of how it it seemed like they were, like one was always with his sons, the other guy kind of had this leadership quality, or is that just how you chose to show them? I mean, that's uh, pretty, pretty accurate to, um, to who they are. I mean, Peron uh, is a man with a lot of authority there. He's in, in many ways, uh, you saw the president as well, but Peron functions a lot like a man, you know, like the village mayor. Uh, a lot of people look up to him, including Ramon, who you saw in that scene, that confrontation, which was very uncomfortable for us to shoot. Um, in fact, a lot of that scene was shot with just us, like, as they were getting into it, just like pressed record on our cameras and just sort of turned back. Um, but uh, that is who he is. He's a loud, big presence. Um, Roman is this guy who's like very, he's home a lot. He goes out to work, to make money, to bring back to the family. He, a lot of his free time is spent with his sons and daughters and um, he is home a lot. And that, that is sort of their natural, sort of their natural way of being. Yeah, and the magic show also incorporates fathers and sons. I mean, a lot of the show itself is sort of about weird Freudian issues and kind of a, a combat between the two. And, you know, I'm going to cut the tongue out of my son's mouth because he's talking back to me. Like, there, 
the father and son relationship is inherent in the way that street magic works in India. And so, you know, they would make puppets together in a puppet show, but for the most part, Puran would go out and perform those puppet shows by himself. So, you know, that's sort of how that works as well. It's also interesting, I mean, just to get back at what we were saying earlier about, like, just coming back every day, is people get exhausted performing for you, for the camera, being like, no, I'm a guy who does this every day. And um, they get, it's tiring. So like, uh, not a lot of the footage from the first two weeks of our trip made it into the film. Um, basically the newspaper scene and the reactions around that are like the only little chunk. Cause everything else was like a little bit like getting used to us. And so a lot of us showing them how they are is just because like they run out of things to do for the camera just like, well, I'm, just hanging out with my sons and like, we're just like rehearsing this or they're just playing on the roof. I, that's not interesting to you. And we're like, yeah, it's all interesting to us. It's all valid. Um, I just had a question about um, footage of the Rahejas or the municipality of Delhi that's trying to redevelop the area. Um, you know, it's a beautiful film. The perspective that I didn't really get very much of was um, you know, the developers as well as the, the governments. Um, and I thought that that could have been an interesting counterpoint because obviously we have so much poetry and pathos with, um, with the, the uh, residents of the colony. But I was kind of curious to get, get inside, you know, the other side. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, we get that a lot. I think that's a really natural reaction to have and something that when, even while I'm, when I was in the editing room, it's like, I, you know, why didn't we have, you know, why can't we get this? But I think the, the truth is in our process is that like, we did have a lot that we left out. Um, and it's getting at that um, perspective that I was talking about earlier, which is like, I wanted, um, I think we all were really interested in trying to get the perspective from the ground up not so much from the top down, because I think so much of how we orient ourselves in stories and how we find out about stories in a lot of ways and through the media in general is top down. And we were there, I, you know, we, I, we felt like our value there, our role there was to give this perspective. Not many other people are going to go there and spend months. Um, and that allowed for us to give this bottom up perspective, which is not so much why development was happening because we all understand that we all know it, they're not they're not villains they're they're reacting to what greater society wants what modernization requires and what we were there what our what we saw our value was it's like what's to be lost when you supplant something like this when you build something new and modern what is lost that was old um yeah i mean i think We've talked about this a little bit, but the uh, the you know what's hitting what's hitting the Cathbodley colony is is part of a much larger phenomenon. Obviously, I mean the you know it it is or was slated to be the first skyscraper within the city limits of Delhi, but this has already happened in Gurgaon and obviously all over the country. And uh, for us, it's you know it felt a lot like we just thought of it like an asteroid movie you know it was that there's this force that's coming it's so much bigger than any of them and in an asteroid movie you know you don't really spend too much time looking at the asteroid it's it's we understand it it's very dangerous 
What you instead focus on is relationships and people and, you know, you know, families and what you're afraid of losing, what you think you'll leave behind. And, you know, and I think that idea of like, even though things, you know, that they've been able to stay in the colony and they're, and they're fighting every day, but I think for us, like, there's still that sense that like, this could go away at any point, that time is not on their side. And so we wanted to really like capture this moment in time where, you know, they're in a transition and, and what are they thinking about as they move through that transition? Um, I have a question about the parade. Uh, there's a certain point in the middle of the movie when Puran says, here's the deal, we're all gonna get together, we'll showcase our talents. And I think he used the English word parade. It was dropped right into the Hindi. Um, I'm wondering if, uh, well, number one, you know, then you showed footage of the parade. Um, I wonder where it went and what the idea was behind it and whether he was, was he proposing that as a political tactic specifically? Like, this is the way we get politicians to listen to us or to take notice. How strategic was that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we made a, you know, like, I think uh, we try to be very restrained in how much we um, revealed ourselves in the film as directors and producers, you know, how much we called attention to, to our own choices. I mean, there's certain moments where I think we're louder than others. And I think the parade is one of those where, um, you know, he's very excited and very earnest that this may do something. And then he kind of takes it out into the, he's like, we should just get out into the street and, you know, we'll make sure that they know who we are. And it's this beautiful idea. And then we're just following him as he takes it into the highway. And it just kind of gets drowned out. Like all the drumming, it, all that cacophony is nothing compared to the honking horns of the rickshaws that are speeding by. And, you know, even though like people stopped and people watched and people took photos and really were admiring of it, there was just that sort of sad sense we had while we were filming that scene. Like it started so beautifully when it was in the colony and as we emerged out into the world, we were just, it was almost like our bubble had burst. There was no television cameras at that point? Not at that point, no. I, I remember the night before the parade and I was talking to Puran and I was like, Puranji, like, you know, how, how will people see? Like, how will people know what exists here? Because at that point, I was like sold to 100 degrees, right? Like I was, I was so enamored with the place. And he said, just wait and see. Like, just wait and see what happens when the parade comes out. And I remember we were sort of weaving through it to make sure that we were filming. And in, in my life, it has been one of the most truly magical experiences I've ever had where there were these young kids who couldn't afford to go to their own parents' performances and they were seeing their parents for the first time on stilts or, you know, in their masks. And it was really one of the most beautiful experiences of my life until we hit the street. And you hit the street and you realize, regardless of where you are in the world, traffic and, and chaos will drown even the most beautiful of art and music and expression. Um, because that's the life we live in. And it was just such a, it was such a, you know, direct and explicit uh, metaphor for what they were going through. And we, I mean, I think we, we felt it that day where we just saw it dissipate when it went into the traffic and we thought, Gosh, crap. <laughs> um, my question was about the women in the film. Um, and obviously, 
I really appreciate that you picked out a young girl, the acrobat, and then also the the woman who who had like this interesting role in the the sort of governing body. So I was just, I mean, it seemed to me very much that, you know, you were sort of making sure that there were some women faces in the film. And I don't mean that in like a token way. I mean, I, you know, in, because, so my question really is, um, well, one, I'm really interested in the woman who was in that governing body scene, like who was she and why didn't we kind of learn more about her or her role? Because she seemed to have this voice or she felt that she did anyway whether or not people listen to her. Um, and then also the young girl, is her name Maya? Yeah. So just about Maya, I really, um, like, do we know what happened to her, where she is? Yeah, I, I, that's a good question because it also illuminates a, illuminates a very real um, hurdle when you're two white men trying to go into a traditional culture and with cameras. Uh, a, a lot of women were uncomfortable being on camera, uncomfortable being with us, uncomfortable being alone with us at all, uncomfortable um, allowing their daughters. Maya's mother was very um, protective. Um, and if we had to take her out of the colony, we had to take her and other members of her family um, Patasi is the name of the woman who was in the government body uh, and yeah very loud um, very awesome super awesome um, very intimidating um, she, she, she was like the counterbalance to Puran in a lot of ways because Puran was like so like had such a big present and uh, so did she um, she is one of the people who moved to the transit camp. Um, and it's someone that we're actually really interested in following up on. Uh, we're going back in October um, to visit, to see our friends, and uh, to see what exactly is happening at the transit camp, because it, it's really hard to know from here. There's not a lot of coverage on it. Um, as far as where where is Maya now, uh, she is... How old is Maya now? 22? She must be about 21, 22. 21, 22. Yeah, as, as the last we've heard, uh, she's still in the colony. Um, but we'll find out in October. There was another woman um, that found very interesting. Uh, was she Mr. Raheja's wife? That, 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 that big fat Punjabi <laughs> woman. No? And she was a, a sort of a representation of a certain class of India also. Um, Yes, right. No, she was uh, she was one of the two tasked with being the liaisons between Rahasia and the colony, and you know, uh, yeah, no, yeah, I mean, she was look. She's not a bad person either. <laughs> she's not like I mean, we you know off camera, she was like, oh, you're from New York and you're from DC, talking to our cinematographer. My son's going to GW, and was having a very nice conversation about her son going to GW, and. But it's just the minute that you're dealing with people who you consider, you know, just enemies, enemies and not of the same obstacles, class. Obstacles. You know, it's it's classism, you know, really. And and I think, and you know, caste mentality to a degree. And I think that, you know, she's just like, look, stop being stupid. Stop being stupid. You guys, we are giving you something for free. 
we'll give you a paper eventually that proves that point, but just take our word on it and just sign it, okay? Like, can we just get this over with so that we can make our money? And, you know, from her side, it's like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. She's just going to make a lot of money when this happens, if this happens. And also from her perspective, it's like, look, like, this is the first time you've been offered free housing. Like, you, you know, there are other moments all over India, all over the world where squatters are kicked out of the land and are given nothing and there's no media attention at all. And so from her perspective, it, she's like, it, it's a benevolent instinct, which is like, look, you, you, you're not going to get anything. Take this. Trust me. Um, and, um, you know, man, it's just a bad task. Uh, yeah, it's a bad job. I wouldn't want it. Um, but, you know, that's uh, totally valid. And um, they've since protested and taken the risk that maybe they won't get anything. And to this day, they're still there. So I don't know what will happen. Uh, you guys <laughs> announce again uh, how their friends can watch the film. Yes, it is now available on iTunes. Search Sorry, Tomorrow yeah. We Disappear on iTunes. Uh, it is also available on our website, twdfilm.com. Please tell the world. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, 3.0 unported license. To learn more about the New America Foundation, please visit us at newamerica.org. <laughs>